You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. You'll take your Bibles and turn first to John chapter 21 and Romans chapter 1. I have a little bit of an experiment I would like to do. John chapter 21 and Romans 1. We are embarking on our study through the book of Acts, and we will get to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I encourage you to take your Bible out and search the scriptures with us. Uh, We're in the New Testament, which is in the last quarter of the Bible. Don't be afraid to use your index. And if you don't have a Bible, um, I highly recommend that you download the Version Bible app. That's Y-O-U. And then once you download it, you can go to the More tab, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church. And if you'll click on that, you'll get the scripture, the notes, the quotes, and references. If you're outside the Habersham County area, you might have to search for Demarest, Georgia. That's D-E-M-O-R-E-S-T. As I mentioned before, we're beginning our study through the book of Acts. And this is part one in which I've entitled, It Follows. It Follows. We're going to do a a little experiment this morning. The last time we gathered digitally, we were in the Gospel of John and in chapter 20. And there's just one more chapter left in the book of John. And in it, the risen Lord, our Savior and God, Jesus of Nazareth, is appearing to his disciples in the city of Jerusalem. Now note this. Note Jerusalem, all right? Now, and I'm in uh, John chapter 21. I'm going to flip over to Romans chapter 1, right here. Here in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, who was not a member of the original 12 disciples okay, that followed Jesus during his earthly ministry, is writing to a group of Roman Christians in Rome. Now you may say, what's the big deal about that? Rome is the heart and center of the Roman Empire. Please catch what we just did with our Bibles by turning to John chapter 21 and then to Romans chapter 1. Think about this. Jesus in John 21 is in the city of Jerusalem. He was charged with blasphemy by his own nation because he claimed to be the Son of God. He was charged with treason against the Roman Empire because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, God's king. How did Jesus' life and teachings, and, and, and don't look at it from the privilege of history, look at it in AD 30. How does this comparatively little-known Jew from the backwoods of Galilee His life and teachings move from Jerusalem in Israel and reach all the way to Rome 
in the same generation. What followed, what passed from John 21 in Jerusalem to where we get to an apostle preaching and teaching to Christians in the heart of the Roman Empire. This is what we're studying. It's all recorded here in the book of Acts. Now, the writer of the book of Acts is a man by the name of Luke. Luke is not mentioned by name often in the scriptures. He appears only three times by name. Colossians 4.14, 2 Timothy 4.11, and Philemon 24. Little is known about Luke. Colossians tells us that he was a medical doctor, and 2 Timothy tells us that he was a companion to the Apostle Paul. Luke was a disciple of Paul. And you're going to note here that in the book of Acts, this disciple of Paul, Luke, who's a medical doctor, is going to write to this individual named Theophilus. And scholars debate on the identity of Theophilus. Some suggest that Theophilus is a real, actual person. Others suggest that the Theophilus stands for much more. He stands for a group of readers. The name Theophilus, if you break it down, Theo and Philos. Theo, of course, is talking about God, Theos. And Philo is usually a type of friendly or brotherly love. It's a term of endearment. And so when you put it together, the name Theophilus means a lover, friend, or someone who is dear to God. And so some people think that, that Luke is writing to God-fearing uh, Gentiles or people who are already Christians who love God and want to know more about Jesus. Either way, we can't be sure. You're also going to see in Acts chapter 1 that Luke is going to refer to his first narrative, or depending on your translation, his former treatise. And this is going to refer to the gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Luke is the author of the named gospel and the author of the book of Acts as well. We need to see that the gospel of Luke is part 1, and the book of Acts is part two, and it comprises a two-volume work written by this disciple of Paul, a medical doctor named Luke. And we're going to be asking a simple but profound question, and it goes back to the little experiment we just did. How does the life and teachings of a pretty much unknown Jew from the world standpoint within years, just a few years, go from the city of Jerusalem to the epicenter of the Roman Empire. And to put it in our language today, how does the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, reach the world? How does it go worldwide? Let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's, let's read this. It says, Ah, and he's referring to himself Luke wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, that's in reference to his ascension, after he, Jesus, had given instructions through the Holy Spirit 
to the apostles, and this would be the, the twelve disciples, he had chosen. Verse 3, after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them, again the apostles, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Again, the question, how does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, reach the world? The first thing that I want you to write down is this. Believe in the risen Jesus. Believe in the risen Jesus. And I want to explore three things about the nature of faith and the nature of Jesus. When we talk about believing in the risen Jesus, we need to understand what is the object of our faith, the Christian faith. And please, bury this deep in your soul. Make it a part of the foundation of your life, okay? Is that Christ crucified for our sins and bodily raised for our forgiveness is central to the Christian faith. It is the object of the Christian faith. We believe and we proclaim that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. After his resurrection, Jesus remained on the earth for 40 days and he taught his disciples. Now this is amazing. What is Jesus teaching his disciples post-resurrection? Well, if we go back to the book of Luke, part one of this two-volume work, Luke tells us what Jesus was teaching his 12 disciples. Listen to Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is prior to his crucifixion and then subsequent resurrection. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When Jesus says the law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms, he is in reference to the entire Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. He says that the whole Hebrew Bible was written about me. I am the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. And then he said to them, this is what is written. And so this is what he's going to be teaching his disciples post-resurrection. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. I need you to see from the risen Jesus that he understood himself as the gospel story. What the Bible is all about is that it culminates in the suffering and death for our sins and his glorious vindication through his resurrection. This was the basis of early Christian preaching. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day in accordance to the scriptures. And here's the sad, but I also believe true thing about the, about the pure true church is that it is still central to the object of our faith and preaching. If you are not hearing Christ crucified from the pulpit, then you are seeing a church that has departed from the faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. That is the object of our faith. Our faith rests 
on the meritorious work and vicarious sacrifice of Jesus of Nazareth for our sins. And God raised his son from the dead to prove to you and I he really is God's son. And we should leave everything behind, repent of our sins, and trust in Jesus alone. That's the object of our faith. But then I want you to notice the nature of our faith. The nature of our faith. Our faith is not a blind faith. Blind faith is having complete confidence in someone or something without any reason to do so. Without any reason to do so. Our faith, please write this down, is not an unreasonable faith. Notice what Jesus does in Acts chapter 1, how Luke summarizes this time before his ascension. He appeals to rationale. He appeals to reason and good thinking. He appeals to the senses of the disciples. And you could say it this way. He is appealing to science. What do you mean, Josh? Luke records it in more detail in Luke chapter 24, verses 38 through 43. There, Jesus met with his disciples, invited them to touch his body, and he even broke bread and ate with the disciples. So these many convincing proofs serve as the basis for the apostles' faith in the risen Jesus. The Christian faith is not built on speculation or a myth or some story, but on Jesus' actual words in real space and time that they actually saw the risen Jesus. As noted, the resurrection of Jesus is central to the gospel. You can put this down. If Jesus was not raised, the apostles would be speechless. They don't have a gospel. They don't call people to repentance and forgiveness of sin and to worship Jesus of Nazareth because he's been raised, the firstborn of the resurrection, to immortality and incorruptibility. You don't get that theology without a risen Jesus. But notice, Jesus proved himself to them. Many convincing proofs. So what? What does that have to do with you and I? None of us are receiving physical visitations of Jesus. So where does that leave our faith? Is it just blind faith? I need you to think about this. Your faith and my faith rest on the reasonableness of the testimony, witness, and word of the apostles. One good reason to believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the early churches, the, the, the church of the apostles, their boldness and commitment to preaching a crucified criminal and risen Christ with every predisposition to the contrary. Remember, the apostles, don't give them the privileged uh, position of history. Look at it from their perspective. They were initially advocates for quitting on Jesus. They were going to return to their boats and start their careers. And his own brothers, Jesus' own brothers, James and Jude, had nothing to do with Jesus during his whole earthly ministry. Then all of a sudden, the whole apostolic band, the original 12, minus Judas, plus James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, they come out into the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified just 
50 days later and began to preach to all the people there that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he was worthy of worship. They ascribed to him the titles of the God of Israel. Note, being the original and very first witnesses of the resurrection, this group, this apostolic band, would have known if it was a law. And yet they continued to preach the gospel despite persecution and even martyrdom. Now, you say, what's the big deal? People today, right now in our world, will endure persecution and martyrdom for what they believe to be true. The original apostles, the, the twelve, the apostles that are referenced here, they would have known if it was true. A significant difference. They're not believing if it's true. They know whether he appeared or not, and yet he, they went on to endure persecution and martyrdom. That's the difference between uh, martyrs today and their persecution and martyrdom then. They were first-hand witnesses. People, today, we would die on behalf of the apostolic testimony. But my point is this. Your faith and my faith rest on the reasonableness, the sure foundation of the apostles' testimony recorded in the Bible. And we believe on the basis of their word. And it is a sure word. The third thing I want you to see here is the nature of Jesus' teaching when we talk about the risen Christ. Jesus continued teaching about the kingdom of God. God has promised throughout Scripture that He would reign over all and bring to an end all death and disease. And I know more than ever we are longing for the return of Jesus and the consummation of His kingdom. When God's Son, Jesus, came to earth for His first advent, what we celebrate at Christmas, He brought God's kingdom. We see it, we see glimpses of it, in the signs and wonders, healings and miracles that Jesus performed. But His mission was not yet complete until He died for our sins and rose from the dead to create citizens for His kingdom. If Jesus were to return without offering the forgiveness of sins in judgment, he would just slaughter us all. So his first advent and his first mission was to pave a path to citizenship in his kingdom. Now, here's the deal. God's kingdom is present in part right this very minute through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes a spiritual change in our hearts, and in the people who believe the gospel. The ultimate culmination of the kingdom of God will be fully realized when Jesus comes again, when he returns for his church, and he will rule and reign over the earth, this earth. He will defeat his enemies, and he will consummate the kingdom. But what happens between now and then, when we're between the times, when we're between this present spiritual kingdom and then this later fulfillment of a physical, visible kingdom. What's happening? The analogy I want you to think about is the analogy of like a lame duck president, right? When, a lame, when there's a lame duck president, 
That means his term, or he has not been reelected for office, and his term is over. All right? So the president-elect would be elected in November, but would not be inaugurated till January. In the meantime, the president who remains generally lacks, politi uh, lacks political influence. His, his rule and reign is over, right? Because the president-elect has been elected, and all he is awaiting is inauguration. And so you'll see presidents do one of two things. Sometimes they'll do nothing because they can't get anything done in those last month or two. Or they'll go rogue and they, they have nothing to fear, right? And here's what I want you to think about in the terms of application to us with you and I being between two kingdoms. When Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave, that was like election day. The powers of this world were overturned. All right? He disarms death, uh, dis, uh, disarms Satan uh, with death, okay? And forgiveness of sins is now offered in his name. But at the same time, we still have sin, we still have temptation, and while the devil is defeated, he still is loose to tempt the world. All right? So there is some influence, there is some measure, although the victory's done been won. The devil and sin and death are defeated. And what are we waiting on? Inauguration day. When Jesus Christ returns and literally and physically does away with all of it. So they are spiritual realities that we can experience right this second. And then there's physical realities that are awaiting us in the future. I want you to think about this. The kingdom of God can be expanded and experienced in these ways, it can be expanded only through the gospel proclamation. As the church preaches Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and people repent of their sins and trust Christ as Savior, this is what Colossians 1.13 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred or qualified us into His beloved Son's kingdom. That's happening right now. If you'll repent of your sins, if you'll admit to Jesus that you're a sinner and you rest and trust wholly upon Jesus' meritorious work on the cross that he suffered and died for your sins to, to, have, to have you escape the judgment and wrath of God that you can be forgiven and experience eternal life beginning now with a relationship with God and lasting throughout heaven then at that moment you are spiritually reborn and God the Father transfers you up out of the domain of darkness and sin and lostness and puts you and plants you into God's Son's kingdom. So you can become a part of the kingdom now by repenting and surrendering to the King at His gospel announcement. And then the second thing that happens is we can experience the kingdom right this second. You say, how do we experience the kingdom? Listen to Romans chapter 14, verse 17. It says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't get the time to unpack that first part, but I need you to catch this. He's saying that the gospel is not built on these external rules. Right? The kingdom is not about an external rule by which we judge one another about who's in and who's out. In fact, the way what the real kingdom is about, in, in part now, is that the Holy Spirit is in us 
and he is producing righteousness, all right, faithfulness to God, love for one another, and joy, right, unspeakable, full of glory, that is not uh, a part of this world, but it's a joy that comes from another world, that the Spirit of God's doing that in our lives. And what Paul's trying to say, he says, that's what the kingdom is about. It's what God's doing on the inside as he brings every, every area of your life under submission to King Jesus and the Holy Spirit, Spirit begins to produce in you the image of Jesus. All right? So the question, back to the original question, how does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, reach the world? First, and I'm look at it this way, the apostles believe in the risen Christ and we believe in the risen Christ as the object of our faith, not with blind faith, right? But resting on the reasonableness of the apostolic testimony and word and that we're going to expand the kingdom and experience the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. But here is the big idea, the, the, the main truth, the truth you have to come away from this message. How does the gospel go from Jerusalem in John 21 to Romans chapter 1 to the heart of the Roman Empire? And this is the big thing you've you got to write down. Acts follow the gospel. Acts follow the gospel. How did the life and teachings of a comparatively little-known Jew from Galilee go from Jerusalem all the way to Rome in the same generation? Because of Acts. Listen to what Luke 24, 46-48 says. He also said to them, after Jesus explained that he is the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. He goes on to say, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And here's the next line. And he's talking to the apostles. You, y'all, are my witnesses of these things. His disciples, his followers, will fulfill the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, our part that we get the privilege to play is to, is to see Jesus' kingdom expand all over the earth because we get to act. We get to follow on the back of the gospel and proclaim it to the world. The reason the teachings of this comparatively little-known Jew from Galilee went going from Jerusalem to Rome is because Acts follow the gospel. The apostles, you and I, are not saved to sit. All right? We are saved to serve and to act and to share the gospel. We are included in this prophetic mission. Jesus included you and me and sharing his gospel to the whole world. Now some of you are sitting there going, and I am stuck at home. What do you want me to do about that? The application today is so practical. I want you to think about this. I think, of course we're living in an unprecedented time, but I also believe this. We are living in an unprecedented time for the gospel to leverage the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. There are approximately 328 Amer million Americans. 
328 million Americans. Americans self-identifying as having no religious affiliation, they, we call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, comprises 22.8% of the American population. That's almost one out of every four people in America would say they're not affiliated with religion. Almost 80% of Americans, now catch this and you'll, you'll know this because of the culture we live in, say they believe in God. So 80% says, yeah, I think there's a God. But only 56%, just a little over half, believe in the God as described in the Bible, this book, the Word of God. Pastor Dean and Sarah writes, considering the fact that approximately 70% of the U.S. population still identifies as Christian, we have a large group of people that would likely be overlooked in our outreach or missions and yet those people who claim to be Christians don't know that they believe what the Bible says. They, wouldn't, they would say, I'm a Christian and I believe in God, but I'm not sure that it's the God that's described in the Bible. That's not a Christian. That's a cultural Christian. That's a Christian in name, a nominal Christian. So there's the, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, I want to give you another thing to think about. There are 221 million Americans using Facebook. 221 million Americans using Facebook. That means two out of every three people are online with you. Since COVID-19, Facebook reported that overall U.S. traffic from Facebook to other websites, so, so people going to Facebook and then going to see what other people are saying, has increased by 50% in just the past couple of weeks. Immense traffic is working through Facebook. And then in 2018, just two years ago, Facebook overhauled its newsfeed algorithms to show more posts by friends and family, not by organizations. Right now, I need you to think about this. I need you to do a paradigm shift for just the next couple of weeks while we're in this unprecedented time. These avenues of social media, they are the marketplace right now. They're, they're the third place, right? Nobody's at home, work, church, right? If we're fortunate, we're at home and work. The third place now is not community, it's not church, right? You know where it says. You're, you're on it right now. Your third place is in a digital world right now because of this. So we have got to leverage the gospel in this digital world. It is by our actions, our words, and our lifestyle which flow from a heart that's changed by the person of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus that causes us to want to tell the world that Jesus is alive. And what I want to encourage you to do is while we are under these measures, the Great Commission is not or never will be quarantined. If you are watching, watching or listening to me, you, you, and I need you to see this, have access to the masses through social media. The masses by just the technology right in front of you this moment. 
You and I must leverage this unprecedented opportunity to use this to share the gospel and introduce people to Jesus. Don't miss it, church. It is, star- it is literally sitting right in front of you. You will never have a time in your life, I don't think we will, where you will be able to share the gospel with more with this mass of people with such ease. Because you can literally click share. That's absurd. I read one meme this week, and I actually think it's really good. Is is and I'm and I'm not trying to make it cartoonish, but please listen to it out. Satan is over there brooding over the fact that he had he closed down all the churches and and then God in this cartoon says, and I opened up one in every home. And there's a part of that that I really believe is true. We're getting the chance to leverage the gospel in a way that we never will again because everybody is in this third place, this digital world. That social media, uh, media place is your mission field while we're under this. Note, Jesus' ministry was both one of teaching, and I love teaching, but this is the part that Jesus gets all of us on, and doing. He didn't just teach it. What did he do? He did it. He did it. There is no doctrine without duty. There is no creed without conduct. There is no belief without behavior. We must practice what we preach. Jesus lived and taught, and as disciples, we learn and live. The gospel is not good news if Christ crucified for our sins and bodily raised for our forgiveness is not central. If we're not proclaiming, we can call it the gospel, but it's another gospel if we're not preaching Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose from the grave as vindication and to justify and forgiveness. If we, if we don't preach the whole gospel to the whole world, it's not the gospel. But then the other part I need you to think about is the gospel is also not good news if we withhold it from the world. The gospel is not a secret. Jesus died to make the gospel public property. It is open to everyone. And you and I are debtors to God and our unsaved neighbors, whether that's physical or digital neighbors. We must share the gospel. Why? Acts follow the gospel. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to give you the opportunity right now to confess you're a sinner, to repent of your sin, to no longer have the attitude or mindset about your sin that you've held, but to share God's point of view on it. Right? That it brings you under His judgment, His wrath, His righteous anger, and you deserve eternal hell because of it. But I also want you to repent to this. You're not just repenting or turning from something, you're turning to something. To the love of God demonstrated in His Son, Jesus Christ. When He came to this earth, shed His blood, and died on the cross for your sin, He erased your sin through His shed blood. 
Through his broken body, he absorbed the punishment for your peace with God and to prove that he paid to bring you back to God. God raised Jesus from the dead and said, go preach this good news in Jesus' name. And that's what we've done today. And if you want to turn from your sins right now and trust Jesus alone as your God and Savior, would you bow your head and just, I want to teach you to pray to Jesus. There's nothing special about this prayer. If it's not a sincere desire on your part, right, to turn from your sins and rest in Jesus, then the prayer means nothing, okay? But God knows your heart, and He knows what you're seeking from here, and He hears all who call upon His name. So just say this. Say, Dear Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner, and I deserve judgment and hell. But I believe you love me. You came down to this earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died on the cross for my sins. And I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Send the Holy Spirit into my life. And then help me to follow you. I want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, will you do two things? I want you to visit two pages on our website. If you go to mtcarmeldemers.com forward slash home or just hit the home tab, hover over it, you're going to see Jesus' story and baptism. And I want to encourage you to watch the story of Jesus in that short video. And then go to baptism, read about it, fill out the form, and give us the opportunity just to connect with you, all right, to talk about your next steps in following Jesus. And if you've never been baptized, you've never went public about your faith, you can go to that baptism tab too and fill it out, and we would be delighted to baptize you. Everybody's lining up, they're queuing up, and as soon as we get the chance, we're going to do it. And then to my fellow brothers and sisters, again, don't let this opportunity, and I know it's hard to see it as an opportunity, but just put on the lens of faith and a biblical worldview in a moment and realize God is still sovereign. This did not surprise him. And we as a church get, get the opportunity, the privilege, to leverage the gospel in a way that the world may have never have experienced until now, that it can go around the world with a simple click. So while I want you to do that, I don't want to downplay following, expanding the gospel through proclamation and the experience of the Holy Spirit working in our lives on a daily basis because I do believe fundamentally the gospel is built and goes through relationships. But while we're not able to relate physically, this is the closest thing right now that we have to resembling relationships, and that's leveraging Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.